It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. More and more, I have been seeing articles and posts talking about the idea of the hidden pandemic or the pandemic that is not being talked about, the pandemic within the pandemic. There's been a lot of phrases that I've seen recently talking about this concept. And of course, in the rabid digestion of as much relevant, hopefully relevant information as possible between the documentaries that we watch, the articles we read, the research that we do to bring different ideas, concepts, and topics here on This Might Get Uncomfortable. One in particular jumped out at me this week, Whitney, that you had sent me in the notes for our show planning. And of course, as the universe seems to do, I don't even know, I won't even say the universe, let's just say algorithms. I think that as, as a slight tangent before we get into today's topic, the demonization of technology in general, I, I think is a bit misguided because algorithms can actually provide some good stuff sometimes. When you start researching articles, for instance, on the implications for brain health or mental health, and you start getting more and more topics come up, it actually serves a great purpose, especially for researching and providing topical matter for the show. That being said, the second pandemic, the pandemic within a pandemic, aka the hidden pandemic, the consensus with all of these various terminologies seems to be that the mental health side of the pandemic and what it is actually biologically doing to brains of COVID survivors are the two topics that I want to jump into today. They're two different buckets, but I think it's related, Whitney, in the sense that most of the coverage and certainly most of the topical matter I think that we've covered here has been mostly about perhaps the sociological implications of COVID. We've talked about medical racism, the disparity of vaccine distribution, but we haven't really dug too deep necessarily into how COVID is affecting people's actual physical brains, their neurobiology, but also how it's affecting our psyches. So I want to dive into that today because this article that came out 10 days ago at the time of this recording was something that you sent me from CNN.com. And for anything we mentioned today, we are going to link to all of our resources and continued education links at our website, which is wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. And you can go to the podcast section, which will take you to the show notes and the transcript for this episode with all of the goodies. So these articles will be there for you. CNN.com, and this was really interesting wit, said that the latest research said that up to 34% of COVID-19 survivors received a diagnosis for neurological or psychological condition within six months of their infection. And this came from, again, 10 days ago, a study that was published in the journal called Lancet Psychiatry. The most common diagnosis was anxiety found in 17% of those treated for COVID, followed by generalized mood disorders found in 14% of patients. But the interesting thing is that there is increasing push for people to classify COVID as a brain disease, which is really interesting because researchers, I think, for the most part, have been you know, categorizing COVID as a respiratory thing. It affects your lungs, it affects your breathing. 
But this idea that it's a brain disease is kind of flipping it on its head. It's really kind of fascinating. In the largest study of its kind with 236,000 COVID-19 patients, mostly in the United States, researchers compared their records with those who experienced other respiratory infections during the same time frame. And these researchers found that those with COVID-19 had a 44% increased risk for neurological and psychiatric illness compared to people that were recovering from the flu. And they were 16% more likely to experience those effects compared to people with other, quote, more common respiratory tract infections. And this is the last thing, too, because it's a long article. Again, we don't like to read things ad nauseum. But in February, they studied some patients in Italy, which was another place on this planet that has been really, really hit hard by COVID. They found that people who were recovering from COVID, 30% of these patients experienced PTSD after their recovery. So I think this is really what we're talking about when we're talking about the pandemic within the pandemic, the hidden pandemic, is that we're seeing a fallout in terms of anxiety disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder, neurological disorders that isn't getting until recently a ton of coverage in the mainstream media. And the question that I go to, Whitney, is, you know, what are we going to do on a collective level? Because we can't just make a blanket statement, which also comes from a place of privilege of like, oh, just go to therapy, you know, hire a therapist or, you know, just find someone to work on this with. Some people don't have that option. They don't have the economic background or the privilege to be able to do that. And I wonder, in looking at how high these statistics are, I mean, 30% of people in Italy recovering have some form of PTSD. That's a lot of human beings. And so I wonder on a global level, Wit, what the hell are we going to do to address the psychological fallout in a post-COVID world? You know, you and I have talked about our anxiety. I've talked about my depression, how it seems like my depression and suicidal ideation has been ramped up and I didn't even get COVID. I, it's just a concerning thing since we talk about mental health of, I don't know, I, I wonder what the fallout is going to be especially after, I suppose, the world returns to, quote, normal, whatever that means? Well, I don't have a strong, I mean, first of all, I don't want to speculate because, you know, this is a complex thing. So I don't think it's the question of like, I don't want to get into a dialogue about like fear mongering or what if scenarios. I think it's more important to do our best to be aware First of all, and one of the big issues with COVID is that, if not the biggest issue of COVID, is a lot of people have different opinions on it. Some people don't believe that it's real. Some people don't care. Some people don't feel affected. And there's not too much that we can do to prevent that. I mean, I think a lot of people want to fight when it comes to COVID. And as we've talked about, in episodes, and especially recently around vaccine discussions, there's just so many different opinions on it. And it's complicated because we have our personal beliefs and our personal comfort levels, our personal experiences, and then we have the world as a whole. And certainly some of us lean more towards like, hey, whatever the group needs, whatever the world needs, I will sacrifice my needs for that. I come second. And then some people have the belief system that they come first and the world comes second. And, you know, this kind of varies throughout each of our different experiences because I tend to be someone that puts myself second. I tend to want to put others first, but that actually comes 
to my disadvantage sometimes. Like it's not always good for my mental health to put others before me because then I suffer, right? But then there's like this mentality, like that's so selfish. (laughs) You know, it's selfish to put yourself first. I think this is like a very complicated matter because as a result, I think a lot of people are very confused about what to do. You know, like the personal suffering, to your point, like this, there's a psychological side of this. And people are suffering in so many different levels. Like they're suffering because they miss socializing so much. And so they're willing to risk themselves and as a result, willing to put others at risk. And it's a very short-term thinking. What you're describing here feels like a long-term effect. And unfortunately, as human beings, we often have to pay the consequences of our short-term decisions, you know? And I don't know how much we can prevent that. I think it's just kind of the unfortunate reality of human society. Like a lot of the issues that we deal with environmentally and mental health-wise have been an accumulation. It's like, okay, well, because you wanted to do this thing in the present moment, I mean, look at sexually transmitted diseases. We have so much knowledge and support around that, but yet there's still a huge issue. Unexpected or unwanted pregnancies are a big issue because a lot of the way our brain works, it overrides with the desire of the present moment. Oh, I'm not going to worry about it. Like, I'm just going to enjoy myself now. I'm probably fine. Like, there's a lot of people that believe that when it comes to COVID, right? So they act in that moment where they want to do what's ever best right now or they can't really help themselves. So I'm not sure that this is quite a matter of prevention, sadly. I don't even know if bringing this up is like going to help anything. It's like we have so much statistics on all these consequences in life. And a lot of people see statistics and they're like, well, whatever. Damned if I do, damned if I don't. And that's something that I think I've really been coming to terms with recently is recognizing that a lot of it does kind of come down to every man for himself in a way. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? Because you might not be able to prevent getting COVID. Like you could do, I know people that did everything they possibly could and still got it. And it's like, all right, well, (laughs) here I am. And now I might have these long-term consequences. But the same can be true about cancer. You know, like I remember for so long there was, and there still is to this day, all this mentality around like, if you're vegan, like you're not going to get cancer or your chances are so slim. And I've known vegans that have gotten cancer. I've there, there are people that were even really big advocates for a very healthy vegan lifestyle that got it. And it's like, wow. Okay. Now were their chances less? Like, did they reduce their chances through their lifestyle? Perhaps, you know, maybe it's a big genetic thing. And I think that's a huge part of this conversation too, Jason. It's like, yeah, we can look at all these news reports about what's happening long term. And I'm certainly not trying to be negative about it. But I think one of the big realities I've woken up to in terms of COVID, but also like throughout my work in the health and wellness industry is like, there's just so many people that see things very differently, that prevention is not ever going to be 100% on anything. You can't, I mean, who knows? Like, we can do all this work for the environment. And I'm not saying to not do it. I'm not saying to give up, but I'm just saying we can't assume that 
it's going to work because we're not all in this together. And I think that's probably one of the hardest things about being a human being is realizing that it's virtually impossible for us to collectively unite. And I think COVID and other issues, natural disasters and global issues or things that are happening within our cities, our states, our country, like horrible things that happen, they kind of unite us temporarily. But even then, we can be very divided. Another thing this reminds me of, I mean, just like, it's heartbreaking to see the racism continue. And then I have to realize like, gosh, we have a long way to go. And people are still being killed because of their race. And then we have mass shootings. Like I think there was one yesterday or two days ago that was, I don't think, barely covered through the media that I saw. And it's like, we can barely prevent things like that because people are so divided when it comes to gun control. And people, I mean, speaking of mental health, Jason, it's like, we have a massive mental health issue, COVID or not, is I guess my big point. So yeah, COVID might be causing more brain disease, but so many things are contributing to that. So what do we do? We just have to keep addressing it and chipping away at it. I don't think it's an issue of like, hey, guys, you don't want to get COVID because of all these long-term effects. Like a lot of people just aren't even going to believe that. Or it's like cigarette smoking, too. That's one of, I think, one of the best examples is so many people knew and know the dangers of smoking cigarettes. It's literally written on the box, all these warning signs. But they do it anyways because it's so pleasurable. And they're addicted to it. And I think that's just some of us have stronger willpower. Some of us are very committed. And some of us might be able to prevent things as a result. But some of us, we can try really, really hard and still struggle. Like you're saying, Jason, you didn't get COVID. And yet you're still struggling a lot with these mental health issues. So I guess the bigger question is, what are you and I going to do? And then asking the listener to ask themselves that, like, what are you going to do and what's important? What is your oxygen mask, I suppose? And can you recognize that putting on your oxygen mask does not guarantee that the person sitting next to you will put on their oxygen mask or even keep it on? That you can put it on first and then pass it on to the next person, but they might decide, I don't want to wear it. It's not comfortable. I'd rather risk death than wearing this oxygen mask. And you cannot control that behavior. I have a lot of thoughts in reply to your very sagacious and insightful comments, Whitney. Gosh, where do I start? I feel like lately, since you asked about like, you know, what is my personal oxygen mask and how each person is going to have a different approach to how certainly their their framework of reality around what is happening on the planet right now seems to be very, very different depending on who you speak to, to your point how people think things are going from the economy to the handling of the quarantine, whether or not COVID is real or not, the police brutality, the racism, the environmentalism. I mean, first and foremost, the first thing that I've been doing as of late with is to regulate the amount and the type of information I'm taking in. How do I explain this? I feel like I have been acknowledging how sensitive I am to everything that's going on. And the balance between being informed and being aware and also how easy it is to for me to put myself in a almost catatonic state where I feel like I can't even do anything. It's almost like as two examples, I suppose, in the past week or so, 
how many people have been telling me to watch Seaspiracy. They're like, oh, you need to watch Seaspiracy. You need to check it out. You know, it's really going to inform you and maybe even reframe your relationship to environmental activism and veganism and plant based living even more. I know some of the elements in that documentary, though, are things that at this moment I can't mentally handle. Do you know what I mean? It's like that line of being aware and being empowered and wanting to take action, but at the same time, not wanting to stultify myself with like even more trauma in my brain. And the other thing, too, this past week that in addition to the mass shooting at the FedEx facility in Indiana that you referenced was the video that was released by the Chicago PD of the young man, the 13-year-old boy, Adam Toledo, being shot by police. And that you can watch that footage online. And I was looking at Twitter, I remember observing the comments and also looking on Instagram and how some people were saying, it's important you watch it. We need to watch this. We need to, you know, catalyze community and like, you know, defund the police and that whole framework. But then other people were saying like, I really don't think you should watch it. People were saying in the comments, if you're in a place where you're already overwhelmed and you already feel traumatized and you already feel like your capacity for this kind of stuff is at its limit, that you know we recommend you not watch this. So I think you know it comes down, first of all, my oxygen mask right now is checking in with my psyche and my body to what I can actually handle. And it's not that I want to be ignorant. I don't want to be ignorant. I want to be informed. But I also know that if I watch a 13-year-old boy being shot to death by police and I watch you know, hundreds of dolphins being slaughtered in Japan or millions of animals of sea life being destroyed from the bottom of the ocean, there's a time and a place where I feel like I can handle those kind of mental impressions. And there are times when I feel like I can't. I think that's the first thing, Wit, in response to your question. The second thing too is like, I have started to, I think in the past like two to three weeks, been feeling the effects of the isolation a lot more than I have. I don't know that I can explain it. It's not like there was a situation or a moment that kind of like, how do I say this, hurtled me into this place. You and I have talked about you know, my sort of struggles with loneliness. And I honestly haven't been feeling that lonely lately. But the past two to three weeks, for some reason, I have just felt so lonely, like a deep sense of isolation. And I don't know if that's part and parcel of not really feeling like I have a community per se anymore here in Los Angeles because so many people have moved out. Or the fact that, you know, because of the precautions of certain people, you know, people don't want to hang out in person. And at a certain point, Zoom calls and podcasts and FaceTime just don't feel like they're filling the cup, so to speak. But I've been really focusing on like, how do I deal with these feelings of isolation? I don't know that I have an answer yet. Because again, the FaceTimes, the Zooms, even the podcasts you and I do don't seem to fill my desire for like human contact and for human interaction. And then as kind of a side note, Certain acquaintances have been posting videos from Texas and like, you know, they're in a restaurant, they're in a sports bar, no one's wearing masks. People are partying, they're dancing on the lawn, they're having beers, they're watching football. And I'm like, we talk about the frame of reality, Whitney. You know, that was almost like kind of a shock to see that, a little bit of FOMO. How do I even describe this feeling when people are posting footage like this? It's almost like a completely different world. It's like a completely different reality. And my emotional response was like, God, I miss that. I miss concerts. I miss being together with friends at restaurants. I miss, I don't know, maybe that's part of the loneliness is like my body is like you need human connection and interaction, but what is a way that feels responsible and and appropriate right now? 
because I realize I'm craving it, but yeah, I, I just don't know how to reconcile these feelings of isolation and loneliness right now. It's really tough. And um, I wanted to dig into, you know, I want to pass the baton back to you, but th there was actually, a, you know, we talk about the algorithm, another article that popped up today uh, from the New York Times that I'll talk about later in this episode called Gearing Up for the New Normal, which is by a doctor named Jennifer Ashton, who talks about isolation and PTSD. She has a new book coming out. We'll link to it in the show notes at wellevator.com called The New Normal, which is a roadmap to resilience in the pandemic era. And she talks about how we're all kind of like recovering. And she uses this analogy, Whitney, of how she feels collectively humanity has undergone sort of a psychic amputation and that the goal of rehabilitation when someone has gone through an amputation is to get that person walking again or using a prosthetic device. And, you know, to try and kind of re-landscape our bodies from focusing on the future and not the past and really focusing on healing and recovery. I thought that was a super interesting analogy she used of like the isolation and the anxiety and the mental health issues is like, we feel like we've lost part of ourselves. And I love that analogy she uses because that's very real for me. I feel like the lack of human interaction the last 14 months feels like I've lost a part of my life to a degree. Like, so I love that analogy she used. And I'm curious if that resonates with you at all. I know your experience has been a little bit different than mine, but I don't know that I have a, a lead back to you. I'm just going to pass the baton back because I've ranted and I don't know. I just, I feel lonely and isolated and I feel like I'm going to be dealing with that for a long time. I think as humans, we, we look for a sense of safety and security and we tend to look to other people in hopes that they can provide that for us. And that's kind of what I mean when it says it feels like every man for himself, because only we can figure out what's going to work best for us. As human beings, we are very designed to look to the group. So first of all, it's a very natural thing to want to be in a group. And it's a natural thing to trust the group. And I wanted to reference some of the amazing things I learned in the book, The Righteous Mind, which I, is such a phenomenal read for this subject matter. And one of the big, I haven't finished it yet. I think I maybe got like 75% through it so far. And my big takeaway is like really recognizing that there are so many different viewpoints. And to what I was saying earlier, like there is no right or wrong answer. There is no right or wrong belief system. We just have these tendencies to view things very differently. And that actually brings me a lot of peace. And speaking of peace, at the beginning of the book, the author says that when I was a teenager, I wished for world peace. But now I yearn for a world in which competing ideologies are kept in balance. Systems of accountability keep us all from getting away with too much, and fewer people believe that righteous ends justify violent means. And that really resonates with me because it's like, it's okay that we have competing ideologies. What if we just view them as balanced and not like one is better than another? And yes, it's important to have systems of accountability from getting away with too much, you know, especially in terms of racism, right? Like, I think that's a huge issue here. We need to have accountability. In fact, actually, a term that I've really been enjoying recently is differentiating between cancel culture and accountability culture. And I think 
when a lot of times cancel culture is confused with accountability culture. And that's completely redefining my viewpoints on on this idea of canceling somebody because for a while I was like really frustrated with cancel culture. Then I recognized, I think people just want to hold each other accountable ultimately. And we don't need to cancel somebody. We can encourage them to get better and we can point out when they're doing something that we perceive collectively as getting away with too much. My curiosity before you jump into the next point is, you know, with cancel culture, it seems that there is an endemic aspect of sort of guilting someone or shaming them. Um, You did something wrong. We're going to take away your career, your influence or whatever it is. So I, you know, my curiosity comes into how do we correct, I don't know if correct is the right word, hold someone accountable and hold a light up to how they're showing up and without, without resorting to guilt or shame to do it. You know, it's like, it's like to, to what degree do we highlight someone's behavior and activity without you know, you're wrong, you're bad, fuck you. You know, I'm curious what's an approach if we're not going to default to the guilt and shame model then. This is part of the whole point of this episode, I suppose, is like we can only take accountability for ourselves, Jason. And if I've learned anything over the past 10 years or so that I've been deep in this wellness culture and coaching and educating, you know, like being anyone that's that's been teaching, I suppose. I noticed this even when I worked at Apple and I was teaching. Like people come to things with so many different perspectives and backgrounds. So we can't assume that we're going to get to a place where people are ever fully kind to one another. You know what I mean? Like I think we put, put so much emphasis on how we treat one another as if there's a right or wrong way to treat people because each person views it differently. Like, you know, one thing that's been really irritating me recently is the, the use of the word Karen, which is now a term that's developed very rapidly. Like I think in about the past year or so, especially on platforms like TikTok, but you're seeing, you know, it's, I think it kind of started on TikTok and then it started to like take roots. And now it's like a common term to call somebody a Karen. And at first, like, it totally made sense to me. But then I recognized, A, that's a little messed up. Like, if my name was Karen, I think I would feel so much shame, Jason, because my name was being used to define, like, a personality type. But then it's also an ageism thing and a generational thing. It's like a Karen that people even have, like, the way their hair is cut or how old they are, you know, like all these factors in which we label somebody. And then it starts to become another form of judgment and even prejudice. Like you're judging someone based on all these factors that they can't fully control because what a few people that looked like them or were their same age or whatever behaved in a certain way. And now it's like, it makes me very uncomfortable that word Karen, because it's just so judgy and it's not helping. What is the point of that? And I think that we are in this place of so much righteousness. And it's like, even yesterday, I was watching this TikTok video that I had mixed feelings on. 
And again, it was like coming from this place of, I felt like at the core, it made a lot of sense. So the scenario was there's this black woman in her 20s or so with her friend who is also a person of color, but I'm not sure race does matter. But two young women that weren't white were staying at a hotel in Las Vegas. And one of them was making videos for her TikTok account in her bikini. She's wearing a thong and she's dancing at the pool and, you know, making the standard, well, not even the standard, but like a very common style video. And this white Karen type, you know, woman probably in her 40s or probably 50s, maybe older, I don't know, age doesn't matter, but older than this other woman with blonde hair comes out and asked her not to do that at the pool. And this young woman pushed back and she's like, well, what do you mean? Why can't I do this video? Are people complaining? And, and you, she recorded this. So you can hear the back and forth. And the older woman, who's apparently the manager of this hotel, is saying, I don't want you to do that anymore. And this younger woman is pushing back and saying, well, it doesn't say anywhere that I'm not allowed. There isn't actually any rule here. And there was this battle. And it was, again, this righteous battle, like this older woman that felt uncomfortable watching this younger woman doing these dances at the pool. She didn't feel like that was the culture that she wanted to have it at the hotel that she manages. So I really could see both sides of it. You know, certainly the older white woman, you could say like, oh, she's like some prude and she wants to censor somebody. Like you can see the pros and cons to that. And I can understand like maybe her security was being threatened because she felt like people are going to complain and she's going to have to manage the complaints and she's trying to take responsibility. That made some sense to me. But it also made sense to me that this younger woman was upset because she felt like she was being censored and she was also potentially being discriminated against, whether it was a race issue or not, or an ageism thing. Like you could, you know, and, and this younger woman takes to Twitter and then later on, she starts doing all these other videos. They actually kicked her and her friend out of the hotel at like 10 p.m. at night in Vegas. And a security man, a black young security man came to their door and knocked and had to read off. And then people start attacking him. They're like, how dare he? He's a black man. Like, how is he doing this to this black woman? And it was like, then it became a big race issue. And she's fighting up. And like, again, I can see both sides. He's just doing his job. Right. So he's got financial security to worry about. He probably doesn't want to be fired, even though he might agree with this woman. He's just trying to do his job. So, you know, what is if he stood up for her, he could have been fired. So does he feel comfortable doing that? You know, that's only for him to decide. And this girl starts to be very rude to him, slamming the door in his face, recording it, like making a huge deal. And I'm sitting there thinking, gosh, I kind of feel bad for this guy, but I also feel bad for her. I'm like watching it in almost like a neutral perspective, but leaning towards her because it didn't seem fair to me to be kicked out of the hotel. But we also didn't see the full story. And then, Jason, people take to Yelp in real time. This is really fascinating. People went to Yelp and started writing bad reviews of this hotel in defense of this girl on TikTok and calling out the manager's name and like, maybe even embellishing a bit. Like it was like this whole thing I saw unfold. And then she and her friend make another video of them out in the parking lot after they've been kicked out. And they're like, you know, 
A, all upset and frantic. They're worked up. They feel like that that what their treatment was unfair and potentially uh, illegal. They're trying to scramble to find another place to stay. And it was like this whole drama unfold. And my point in bringing it up is there was a lot of righteousness going on because I don't think there was necessarily a right or wrong. If anything, you lean towards, well, is the customer always right? Was she doing anything wrong by dancing in her bikini? Was it a race issue? Was she called out because she was black? Was she called out because she was young? Was she called out because of the way she was dancing? Maybe this woman felt uncomfortable with that dance. Is there anything wrong with being uncomfortable? Like to your point, Jason, all these people convincing you to watch Seaspiracy, well, you're uncomfortable watching it right now. That's not to say that you disagree. You're just uncomfortable and you've got your reasons. And like, my heart goes out to this manager who is probably uncomfortable. And maybe it wasn't a race issue. It could have been anyone, you know, but does race impact it a little? Perhaps we don't know. I don't know anything about this woman except for I mean, this manager, except from what I saw through the lens of the person that felt like a victim. But I also, you know, it's like, I guess my point being that sometimes we get so righteous, it gets in the way of resolution. And maybe to the woman on TikTok, she felt like it was more important to stand her ground and make a point than try to come to a resolution. Now, is that her ego? Is that her wanting to stand up as a black woman, like there's a lot of things at play here. And then all the viewers who were start to taking sides. And my heart felt a little bad for all these Yelp reviews. I think we've talked about this in other episodes, Jason. It's like all these people writing in horrible comments and giving one stars, like Yelp does takes that very seriously. It's not like you can just delete those. Those could permanently affect this business. When the reality is that that manager may not represent the entire business. So what about the person that owns the hotel? Is it their fault that this woman behaved that way? Like maybe this woman is an amazing manager and she slipped up. That's what I mean coming back to accountability versus cancel culture. Should, you know, you're canceling a hotel because you're trying to hold a woman accountable for her behavior. It's like, is that fair? Maybe so. I mean, maybe I think that's the other thing, though, Jason, is that some people feel so oppressed. That's their only option. They're desperate for their voices to be heard. So they take these extreme measures. And listen, I don't know what it's like to be that repressed. So who am I to judge them for that behavior? The people standing up for one another is also an amazing thing. And that's what I'm saying is like, I can see this from so many different angles that there is really no right or wrong, good or bad And I think that's like part of my point. It's not a black and white, I mean, pun intended or not intended, like black and white issue, but maybe it literally is a black and white issue. The other thing I wanted to say just before I turn it back over to you to hear your feelings on this, Jason, is that in that book, The Righteous Mind, the author points out that you can't change people's minds by refuting their arguments. And I think that's what a lot of us are trying to do. We don't recognize that those two people are different people. They're different ages. They're different races. They've got different backgrounds, different education, different experiences. They're different. They have arguments for themselves. And it's like they're almost trying to change each other. And I think that's a huge part of this conversation, if not the big point that I want to make, Jason, is like, I don't even know if we can change people's minds, period. 
Like going back to that Seaspiracy documentary, Jason, I've seen so many articles coming out arguing against Seaspiracy. And I can't say that I fully disagree with them. I think there's a lot of great points made in those arguments against Seaspiracy, even though as a whole, I think Seaspiracy is an important documentary, but doesn't mean that it's right. And also, I oftentimes the a documentary is designed to change people's minds, but they can be so manipulative in the process. And if they're taking a side, it's like, come over to our side. Doesn't matter if like the other side sees holes in our arguments. Ignore the holes. Just come on over to our side. Change your mind. And that makes me a little bit uncomfortable, too. Just like in our podcast, I'm not trying to change people's minds. I guess, if anything, I'm trying to open people's minds and find that balance as, as the article of the righteous mind is seeking as well. I think righteousness and the idea of virtuousness are very close together. And they're very close together in my mind because I think there's the idea that how we as humans live, eat, pray, worship, and conduct our lives means that we are a more or less virtuous or righteous person. And there's so many examples of this, right? You brought up veganism. If you're a new listener, Whitney and I are both vegan. We've been vegan for many, many years. We don't lead with it on the podcast, although it is something we have talked about in many capacities. One thing that I've sat with over the years, Whitney, to I suppose, make myself uncomfortable and challenge myself to examine my own belief systems is, do I believe that being vegan and living as much of a cruelty-free lifestyle as possible, and I say as much because it's not possible in the current paradigm of our world systems to be 100% cruelty-free. That's a caveat here, is from the animal fat that's galvanized in your tires to, you know, the lithium and batteries. I mean, there's a million examples. Okay. We can't be a hundred percent, but the idea to live as gently and compassionately and with as least amount of cruelty as possible is something I endeavor to do. Does that make me a more virtuous person? The fact that I am a vegan and I choose to live the way that I live, does that mean I'm more virtuous than a cattle rancher or a hunter or someone who's paleo? Am I a better person because of that? I could believe that. I could, I could choose that. I'm sure that there are a lot of people who are vegan that choose that or who are Christian that choose that as an example, not calling anyone out specifically, or that are Muslim or that are Jehovah's Witnesses or that are people that are paleo or they're in the carnivore diet. We can use a quadrillion examples here, but I think the idea is that I choose this thing or live this way and that makes me a better person or more virtuous person. And I'm going to leverage that perspective, my worldview to show other people that I'm better than them or why they should be more like me. I mean, this infects our entire human society, if you really think about it, to your point, Whitney. And it's easy to buy into this in terms of a capitalist structure too, isn't it? You know, if I just buy organic clothing and I eat organic food and I buy a fully electric car and I compost and I do this and I sign this bill and I oppose that oil drilling and I do that, like, I'm not saying let's not take action based on our beliefs. But the slippery slope is thinking, I'm better than everyone else because I choose to do this thing. That's the slippery slope. I'm not saying don't take action based on your worldview. But the moment you start to think you're better than another person because of it, that's when we get into very sticky territory. You know, and I want to say this because in previous podcasts, I mentioned how I am opting out of 
how do I say this? I'm opting out of a heated debate regarding vaccination and regarding a lot of the sort of political frameworks of the pandemic and COVID. We talk about it here on the podcast, but I'm not taking a side, okay? But for some reason, I just, people keep wanting to draw me back into the talk. They want, keep wanting to talk about it. So without naming who, I'm not at liberty to name who this is, it was communicated to me this past week that someone in my life feels like I am being selfish for not getting the vaccine. And the frame of this was certainly not selfish being a positive comment. The context was, you know, I'm disappointed in Jason. He's being really selfish for not doing his part. And you know, at first when I received that feedback a few days ago, Whitney, there was a little part of my gut that was like, wow, really? That's what you believe about me? Okay. I can either empathically take that in and be like, oh, I must be selfish. I must be a quote, bad person for not doing this. Or I can just pull back the lens and go, that's one human's being's opinion and perception of me. It doesn't mean it's true. It means it's a possible perception. But I sat with it and I'm like, huh, let's see. Am I selfish for not getting the vaccine? Doesn't mean I've refused it forever. It means that I am not getting it right now, right? It's sort of when we talk about communication in some of our relationship episodes, Whitney, we've talked about the difference between yes, no, and not right now. That hesitancy is not refusal to your point. That not right now doesn't mean fuck no, never. But being labeled as selfish was a moment of pause for me. You know, I was like, hmm, okay, let me see if this lands. And it was like, okay, that's a possible perspective. Do I feel like I am negatively impacting the collective of humanity by not getting the vaccine? If that's the frame, and that was the framework of the selfish comment. And I was like, I don't feel like I'm negatively impacting the course of humanity by being hesitant and saying not right now. But this is a moment based on your point of righteousness and virtue of this person saying, Jason, then the subtext to me didn't say this, but the subtext by someone saying I'm being selfish was you're not being a team player. You're not doing what's in the good of humanity. You're doing what's in your personal good. And I'm like, yeah, I am doing what's in my personal good. Yes, I am. What I believe and what my intuition tells me based on the research and the evidence I've collected, I am doing what I feel is right for myself. And I'm not going to fucking apologize for that. If I do what I feel in my heart and my gut in the moment, which can change, and I'm allowed to change my mind as a human being, but in the moment, if I feel like intuitively, deep in my core, I'm doing what is best for myself, I'll never apologize for that. It's another reason to read this book, The Righteous Mind, because the author breaks it down in a lot of different ways. And one statement that reminds me a little of what you're saying, Jason, is he has a whole section about disgust. And he said, just because something is disgusting doesn't mean that it's wrong. And that kind of ties into this too. Just because something offends you doesn't mean that it's wrong is another way of looking at it. There's also an incredible frame based on research, I believe, different foundations and actually how it ties into a lot of our political belief systems, but I think it applies to belief systems in general. And there are five different foundations. One is called the Care Harm Foundation, which makes us sensitive to signs of suffering and need and makes us despise cruelty and want to care for those who are suffering. And this tends to be something that a lot of liberal people feel, right? Second foundation is called the Fairness Slash Cheating Foundation. 
And this is in response to reaping the rewards of cooperation without getting exploited. It makes us sensitive to indications that another person is likely to be good or a bad partner for collaboration and altruism and makes us want to shun or punish cheaters. And our society is very into fairness as a whole. There's a whole chart in the book that shows like when you fall into different categories and whether or not that makes you more like liberal or conservative. It's really fascinating. I don't remember all of the ranking. Doesn't quite matter. But I think part of what you're saying, Jason, it feels a little bit like the fairness thing and the caring thing combined. Like maybe this person's judging you. Their belief system is like, hey, we need to reduce suffering and if everybody gets it, then it makes everyone gets the vaccine, then it's fair. And if you're not getting the vaccine, it's unfair to others. And so thus, I want to shun you. There's also the loyalty and betrayal foundation. That's the third one that is makes us very sensitive to signs that another person is not a team player. And that kind of ties into this too. It makes us trust and reward people that are loyal And if they're not, that makes us want to hurt them, ostracize them, or even kill people who betray the group. And I think a lot of those emotions come up in this conversation, too. It's like, oh, you're not being loyal to the country or the world or human society, so I want to ostracize you. And I'm going to ostracize you by saying things about you that are hurtful. Or maybe I want to hurt you, and that's I'm going to say things like call you a selfish person Because I view you as selfish, but I also know in calling you selfish that it's hurting you. And there are two more. So number four is the Authority Subversion Foundation that is about forging relationships that benefit us within social hierarchies, make us sensitive to signs of rank or status, and to signs of people that are not behaving properly. That is less of a liberal mentality, I believe, so that might not apply quite to what we're talking about. And the last one is the Sanctity slash Degradation Foundation, which is the behavioral immune system, making us wary of a diverse array of symbolic objects and threats. It makes it possible for people to invest objects with irrational and extreme values. I don't fully get this one. This one doesn't make a lot of sense to me. But I (laughs) I think it's more of a liberal thing. It's more heavily used by the religious right but also on the spiritual left, as the book says, you can see the foundation's original impurity avoidance function in New Age grocery stores, where you'll find a variety of products that promise to cleanse you of toxins. And you'll find the Sanctity Foundation underlying some of the moral passions of the environmental movement. Many environmentalists avoid capitalism and automobiles, not just for the physical pollution they create, but also for a symbolic kind of pollution, a degradation of nature and of humanity's original nature before it was corrupted. So I guess maybe I can relate to some of this. And this is why it's really fascinating. Like This book really creates these frameworks for better understanding. And to your point, Jason, I think that what would benefit us as human beings is to better understand these things. And usually when somebody is really judgmental towards me and wants to convince me that they are right, that's a sign to me that they're not fully educated on things like this. And that's part of my commitment to education. And I don't really mean that from like an ego perspective. 
like I'm more knowledgeable than you. It's just like you're viewing life through the lens of your beliefs and your righteousness without recognizing that I may have different belief systems. But if we can see that as a balanced thing and respect one another, then it's like creates that more of that peace, in my opinion, versus trying to constantly change somebody's mind and change somebody's behavior. And I know that really wasn't your intention with bringing up like the COVID survivals with mental health. But the reason that I it triggered this whole conversation for me is recognizing that like, ultimately, we do need to put the oxygen mask on first. You know, and in terms of COVID, I'm like you, Jason, still to this day of the recording on April 17th, 2021, I am hesitant to get the vaccine. But I'm also not somebody that's socializing. And that's part of it. It's like, unlike you, Jason, I'm not that lonely. I feel completely fine staying at home. It just kind of suits me. I'm, I The only thing that I leave my home for is to run very basic errands. And when I do run those errands, I wear a double mask. And the other point too, Jason, like, I guess somebody would have to prove to me that if I don't have the vaccine when I go grocery shopping, I'm harming somebody. Like if somebody, if somebody was able to prove to me that I'm risking it somehow, but like if I guess logically, Jason, if I don't have COVID and I go to the grocery store, how am I harming other people? I guess potentially I could get COVID from somebody else at the grocery store that's not vaccinated and then I would be carrying it and passing it on next time I go to the grocery store. Like on for someone like me, I would need somebody to like paint it out, you know, like they would really need to break it down and nobody has done that yet. After this conversation, I feel my personal responsibility to go research it more, but I don't think it's fully fair to call you selfish, Jason, if like, you're not like out partying. I think it'd be a different thing from my belief system if you were going to parties and not wearing a mask and you didn't have the vaccine. Now, to your point earlier, when you were saying all these things about Texas, it's like, first of all, you have a different belief system than the people in Texas that are partying without masks. But you also don't know if they have the vaccine or not. Maybe they do all have the vaccine and that's why they're out partying. But even if they don't have the vaccine and they all want to party and spread it to each other, like that's technically their human right. It might not seem fair to you, but maybe they don't believe in COVID and that's why they're doing it. Maybe they don't care. Like, and again, who are we to judge that person's belief system is my feeling. And I know it's a sensitive subject because people die from COVID and people get long-term brain disease from COVID. And so it feels like it is selfish because they're passing it on to somebody else and risking someone else. And I could totally see that viewpoint. But I think we need to like be very mindful of when we use words like selfish, because if you yourself, Jason, are not hanging out, I guess, from my perspective, it's like, why do you need to get the vaccine right away? Why do you need to rush and get the vaccine if you're not even in a position to contract it or spread it? And maybe also, what if there was more rules? I think that's ultimately what it comes down to is like, I think that the vaccine passports or whatever, the vaccine rules, like, great. If someone says you can't come into this grocery store until you get a vaccine, I would probably consider getting a vaccine. That seems fair. You know what I mean? Or if they said you can order online and have them shipped to you and you don't have to get the vaccine, then I might do that. Right? Like if there were more rules about 
And people really late. I mean, this is part of the issue, which we talked about a few episodes ago. It's like we were talking about medical racism and how the, a percentage of the black community, it's not fair to like be judgmental about their decisions because there's cultural reasons. They might be hesitant to things and they might simply just need more information, just like me. And more information's coming. That's the only reason I'm hesitant about the vaccine, Jason. It's like, well, two. One, I don't feel like I'm exposing myself or others because of how limited my social interactions are, but that might be wrong. And if statistically someone could educate me, I could totally shift my thinking. But two is that people have not laid it out for me. So how am I supposed to make an educated decision? I am personally not somebody who just does something because somebody says I'm selfish. Because the whole point I think that you're making, Jason, is like, I think that person's trying to get you to change your mind by calling you selfish. That's incredibly manipulative. And that doesn't work for you. But there are some people who would be called selfish and that does work for them. And they would say, oh, my God, I don't want to be selfish. I'll get the vaccine. That's enough information for me. But you're not that person, Jason. So in a way, that's like that commentary doesn't do anything. It's just like it's just a statement that doesn't have any meaning for you, except maybe getting you to second guess your relationship with that person. I think if the people that actually know my true nature would know that that kind of comment just makes me dig my heels in even more because of my rebelliousness. And by the way, my choice in the framework of this discussion is not being rebellious for the sake of being rebellious. It's that I want to be as informed as possible and have as much information gathered as possible to make a conscious, consensual decision about what I am doing with my body. And in my mind, that feels measured, that feels mindful, that feels cautious. Does a measured, mindful, cautious approach feel good to me right now? Absolutely, it does. So to your point, Whitney, when I receive, we go back to the comment you know, at the middle of the podcast about cancel culture versus accountability. When I'm on the receiving end of shame or guilt, as I perceived this comment in context to be, you're not going to make me act. Like shaming me or guilting me into action, it's not going to work. I'm not wired that way as a human. It's more important to me to honor what my heart and my mind and my gut is telling me to do than to be accepted by the virtue metrics of the collective. Do you know what I mean? It's not being a martyr. It's not any of that. It's I'm not willing to sacrifice. I don't want to say my truth. That sounds so righteous. I'm not willing to sacrifice my personal choice, which is a deep, important thing to me, just to be accepted by others. I mean, I certainly wouldn't have made a lot of the choices I've made in my life if I wanted to, quote, fit in or be accepted by the collective. So it really comes down to an individual thing. And to your point, Whitney, how someone is framing this entire situation politically, socioeconomically, whether or not they're getting the vaccine, whether they're opting out, to kind of put a bow on this, I don't want to be in judgment of people. I don't want to assess their virtue and their worth as a human being based on these type of decisions, because I don't think it has anything to do with that. I don't think whether or not someone gets vaccinated or doesn't is a reflection of their virtue or worth as a person or their political view or how they worship or how they eat. You know, and I think it really, you know, if we look at the media 
and social media as a lens of all this, it really is becoming a virtue framework. Ah, who'd you vote for? Did you get vaxxed? How are you eating? Did you watch this documentary? Are you anti-racist? Are you this? Are you that? I mean, we could give, again, a litany of examples, but the framework, I think, in general of are you a good person because you believe, act, and think, and do these things? Now we're getting into dangerous territory, and I want to continue to remove my belief system of thinking because my choices make me a better or more virtuous or more righteous person, because I don't believe that they do. Absolutely. And I just wanted to make one final summary of some of the things that I brought up about the vaccine in particular, because it's really important for me to not be ignorant. And I just looked up, you know, I want to do a deeper dive. I think this conversation has inspired me, Jason, because I still have ignorance around the vaccine. You know, first of all, in general, I'm not somebody that gets vaccines. I'm not anti-vaccine, but I'm not somebody that gets the flu vaccine. And I've, you know, got all the vaccines when I was a kid because that was mostly my parents' decision. And then until I started to learn more about my health, I was just somebody that would just get vaccines. But then when I learned more, I realized like, oh, there are other ways that I can do to take good care of my body and not get the flu or cope with the flu. You know, like, the, and it's challenging for me knowing the vaccines are a complicated thing and it's a complex matter, right? But I did just want to share a couple of things. First of all, there's a whole, you know, there are all these websites that talk about facts and things. And I think the CDC is probably one of the best sources you're going to find. And one thing they said is you can get COVID-19 right before or right after you get the vaccination and still get sick. And it takes a few weeks for the body to build immunity. And as has been coming out in the news, like there's now people are saying you might need to get a third shot six months after getting it. Like we're still learning so much. That's part of my hesitancy. It's like I would rather wait to see if they and and also all the stuff going on with Johnson and Johnson this, you know, in the past few weeks, it's like there's a lot of things that they're figuring out. I'm personally not comfortable putting something in my body. Is that new and unsure? There's just too many risk factors. And I want to see the studies that makes me feel more comfortable. And absolutely, you can call that selfish you would like. I am absolutely happy to stay isolated if that means I get to protect myself, right? Like, and then I looked up, okay, am I right about going grocery shopping? And there I've found a, a few uh, websites to talk about it and studies that they found. And generally, of course, when you're in an indoor area with other people, they believe that that's increasing your risk because of the air circulating. However, pretty much every piece of advice that I've heard about COVID and I'm reading right here about grocery shopping, it's like if you stay six to eight feet away from people and wear a mask, your chances, that risk factor goes way down. And then they also recommend sanitizing before and after you leave the store, washing your hands when you get home. I have been doing all of that stuff. They say use disinfecting wipes. Don't touch your eyes, nose or mouth with unwashed hands. You know, follow the exit signs, go into stores where, you know, most stores are very mindful about how many people are in there. Like all of these things I have been doing. So from my research, to your point, Jason, from my research and my personal belief systems and comfort level, I do not feel comfortable getting the vaccine, and I feel comfortable knowing that I've been following all the guidelines to take good care of myself when I've been doing limited 
activities and errands. I'm not socializing with anybody. And I'm not trying to defend myself. I'm just saying that this is my reasoning. But if somebody, if there was a way for me to like talk to an expert, share all this stuff, and then they could come back with an answer for me, you know, like, hey, here's how to determine if you should get the vaccine. Like I would 100% go through it. And if this expert said you should still get the vaccine, Whitney, for XYZ reasons, I'd be like, all right, you've convinced me. That's where I'm at on it. So I think that's an important thing to convey because this whole black or white, like you're either anti-vax or you're getting the vaccination and you're not a self. And also it makes me wonder too, Jason, like, wow, some people have a belief system. You've talked about this before, this righteousness and getting the vaccine. I got a text right before we started recording from a friend who's like so excited that she got the vaccine. And I'm like, great. I don't care. I'm not going to see you like it really doesn't affect me that you got the vaccine. But great. I don't know why you wanted to tell me. But awesome. I literally could care less that she got the vaccine. But you know what, Jason? She cared. And that's why she told me. So great. Good for her. I feel pretty neutral about it. Like I'm like, great. Just because she got the vaccine, I don't feel pressured to get it. And I don't feel like I have any reason to judge her for her reasons of getting it great. And lastly, I would say, I actually think it's awesome that so many people, like my parents got the vaccine, my sister got the vaccine, most of my friends got the vaccine. Awesome. Great for them, potentially great for the planet, but that does not mean that I should feel pressured to get it just because all of them did, given all of my reasoning and my belief systems. And I think you can apply that for my overall view of the world. And there's no mandate for getting the vaccine. And thus, I'm allowed to, based on my rights as a U.S. citizen, to make that decision for myself. If I was breaking the law, it might be a little bit of a different story. I don't know if I'd feel comfortable breaking the law. You know what I mean? But yeah. Any response to that, Jason, before we wrap up today? Yeah, I'm laughing. Anybody who's watching the YouTube video, because your comment, you're like, that's great. I'm not going to see you anyway. That was so good. It was so funny and so nonchalant, your delivery of it. Well, I mean, part of why I say, hey, this is a friend that lives across the country. I don't, you know, to that point too, there are some loose travel plans that I have and I would absolutely consider getting the vaccine before travel. Like that to me is a very logical reason to get the vaccine, you know, because whether I travel by car or plane, like if I'm going to be interacting with other people in person, very reasonable. But then again, you know, I'm going to wait until before I travel because what if I get the vaccine and they're like, oh, you have to get another shot, like because it's been X amount of time. Like that's another reason, too. It's definitely a time factor because if the vaccines effects wear out after six months, why would I get it now if I have no plans to do anything for months? You know what I mean? Like, but if my friend's wedding was happening and I wanted to go to my friend's wedding, absolutely. But like if a friend wants to just hang out, like it's it's not worth it for me right now to A, get the vaccine or B, like to see them without a vaccine. Like truly, there's just no need unless, again, there was evidence that going to the grocery store unvaccinated was bad for me and other people. That would be a very different story. But considering that's the only place that I'm exposed to other people, then I don't see a reason to get it now. 
Yeah, as a final kind of thought on this subject before we wrap, the current presidential administration went on record in the past week at the time of this recording. Again, they may change their mind because that is what humans do. Especially humans in governing situations seem to do that a lot. That being said, they went on record and said they have no plans or intent to mandate passports in the contiguous United States. So they went on record saying that they don't intend for domestic travel to implement any sort of tracking or passport mandate system based on vaccinations. That was good to hear, right? Want to go see my mom, want to go see my friends, want to move out of state, whatever. Internationally, though, to your point at this last comment, Whitney, that's going to be very interesting to see how different countries or the EU, the European Union, decides to implement any framework around international travel toward the end of this year. And to your point, there are places I want to go see on the planet. I want to go to Japan. I want to go to Peru. I want to visit friends in the Czech Republic. I want to go to Iguazu Falls. There's a lot of places I want to see on the planet, okay? So if it became sort of a country by country thing, then perhaps if I want to go to Japan, Peru, Czech Republic at all, then that would be a decision later on to piggyback on what you said. But if the intention is that domestic US travel in all 50 states is not going to be hindered by any sort of evaluation or passport system, I don't see a need to get it. International travel, that's a different story. So again, waiting for more information, waiting on policy, waiting to see how humans react to this over the long term. I'm waiting for all of these reasons. And to your point, Whitney, I'm home 95% of the time. I leave the house two days a week, one to go to physical therapy and one to go get food. I'm home five days a week. I barely leave the fucking house. So it's like, again, why get it now? Doesn't mean I won't in the future, but now doesn't feel like a right time. With that being said, we give you a lot of food for thought, dear listener or dear watcher today. Your comments, your perspectives, your personal beliefs, no matter what they are, are always welcome. We always love hearing from you. So whether that's you emailing us directly, Whitney and I respond to emails at hello at wellevator.com. You can also go to our website again to see the show notes, the resources, the transcript, any of the articles or books we mentioned today are all at our main hub, which is wellevator.com. That's spelled W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. It's an elevator for wellness, okay? It's where you want to go to the top floor, baby. It's where we're trying to get everyone to, whatever that means. Just kidding. There is no top floor. There's no end to your wellness journey. So the elevator just keeps going. We're also on all the social media networks. If you are listening to this podcast and you want to see my facial reactions, which tend to be exaggerated and kind of overt sometimes, or you just want to see Whitney and I kick it, go to our YouTube channel, youtube.com. You can search for This Might Get Uncomfortable. Again, we will link to the YouTube channel in the show notes. And we just want to hear your perspectives on vaccines, on righteousness, the political sides of this. If you had COVID and you're experiencing any of these neurological conditions, we want to hear about that too. So whatever you have to say, comments, suggestions, smart-ass remarks, rebuttals, we'll take them all. With that, we appreciate your listenership. We appreciate your reviews on Apple Podcasts, on Stitcher, on Spotify, wherever you're listening to this podcast. Thank you for the support. Thank you for sharing this on social media. And we will see you again for another episode because we release them on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Fridays are our guest episodes where we bring in very special, intelligent, sagacious human beings to share their perspectives and belief systems on what is happening on the planet. So stay tuned for all that and more coming soon. We appreciate you. We love you. And we'll catch you again.
Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to wellevator.com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.